I think there's a there's a whole bunch of things probably at play of why capitalism isn't discussed much and how we might be able to start kind of opening that discussion up. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. The World Wildlife Fund issued their biannual Living Planet report in late October, and it painted a dark reality. Humanity has wiped out 60% of animal life on the planet since the 1970s, and we are marching towards ecological disaster due to our consumption of food and resources. The media had something of a field day with this. Experts from WWF and other organizations spoke at length on the various aspects of the Living Planet Report, often using broad terms such as humanity or society. But one essay challenged readers to consider a more specific issue, capitalism. Dr. Anna Pygod, a postdoctoral research fellow studying environmental humanities at Swansea University in Wales, penned the essay titled, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not Humanity. Dr. Pygott joined Defender Radio to discuss the essay and her motivations for writing it, managing the curious comments and conversation that have arisen online, and what it means to imagine solutions to socio-ecological concerns. You wrote a, a great essay called Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not, Quote, Humanity. And this all stems from the WWF report, World Wildlife Fund, um, which stated that a, there is a 60% decline in wild animal populations since 1970. Uh, this came out, I think, October 29th or 30th. Uh, and it's been all over the news. Everybody's covering it. Everybody's bringing in an expert to cover it. And cool. you've taken in this essay... you're not taking a different stance, but you're kind of very slightly reframing it, I would say. Um, So why don't we start, if you can tell me a bit about when you read this report and when you saw the media coverage, how it kind of initially hit you? Yeah. um, Yeah, actually, that was was the right expression. It actually did really hit me quite strongly. Um, I guess I, I felt like so I read the report, kind of, I got up in the morning, got my cup of tea, started reading this report on the news and um, and I felt like the kind of culmination of my last like four years of PhD research kind of really, like, it kind of came to a head just reading this report because it just sort of screamed at me that this, this seemed to be just missing the point hugely and I felt like it was um, um, just a real, yeah, missed opportunity and a really misleading um a misleading report, especially because WWF, uh, you know, they're they're very highly regarded. They're a big organization. A lot of people listen to what they say. They have a lot of media coverage, you know, really kind of glossy publications. And I just felt like the one thing that was shouting at me in the face was that the word capitalism was missing from the the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Um, And yeah, I just felt an urge to write about it really. (laughs) And and you didn't, and as I said, it's a great essay, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you really break out a lot of these issues uh, quite clearly, which is difficult to do at times, uh, especially especially for those of you trained in philosophy. Um, I, I I do find sometimes reading philosophy gives me a headache and well, a nosebleed. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you've done in all of your writing, you do a very good job of sort of breaking out the points that you're making. Uh, so it's it's very 
accessible for those of us who don't have that kind of a formal education. And uh, in in reading your paper, you explain that capitalism is the cause, whereas consumption and population, all these other things are symptoms. Yeah. Um, how do we make that accessible to the public? I, I think that's because when, you know, and this is coming from Canada, we're neighbors with the U.S. When yeah. someone attacks capitalism, you're immediately a socialist and a horrible human being. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's very old thinking still regarding that. So how do we talk about capitalism in such a way that we're not immediately driving people away and understanding that capitalism really does have a big role to play in this, particularly from a, a sort of the, the 2%, 98% type arguments? Yeah, sure, yeah. No, that's a really good question. And and I was also um, very surprised when this article was published. Um, I think I wasn't quite prepared for the some of the reaction in the comments were uh, as you said, like an immediate jump to, okay, so what are you suggesting, communism? Or, um, um, and I think, I think there's a there's a whole bunch of things probably at play of why capitalism isn't discussed much and how we might be able to start kind of opening that discussion up. Um, I mean, one thing might be just that, you know, in a similar way to to climate change in some respects, like once you once we acknowledge that something is a problem, then the onus is on us to to change it. <laughs> so it's kind of convenient to keep on ignoring the problem to some respects. For you know, for some people, that might be an effective kind of mental approach um, to avoiding having to do anything. Um, the other thing I think is a huge problem is that um, this idea that there is no alternative. So there's quite a famous saying, um, maybe you've heard it, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a really big problem to, because if we start, you know, uh, targeting capitalism, or identifying capitalism as a problem, then obviously the next question is, well, okay, what's, what's the alternative? And if there is no clear kind of answer of what the alternative is, then, then you kind of go back to square one, if you like, and then you, then it's difficult to identify capitalism, capitalism, or it's difficult to imagine replacing capitalism because we don't know what what we would replace it with. So then, then it's difficult to start targeting capitalism as a problem. Um, so yeah, those things are definitely um, at play. I think that's why it's it's difficult to discuss in some places. And it yeah, as you said, it's really politically charged as well, like capitalism. Is kind of, kind of, kind of shrouded in this ideology. The same way that communism is, so often they're kind of seen as these polar opposites, kind of capitalism, communism, and they're always brought up in the same conversations. Um, but actually, the word cap—I mean, we could just capitalism is a useful, like, analytical uh, term and concept to use to help us identify what's going on in the world. So, um, yeah, in terms of how to it's very tricky like how to kind of break out of those those kind of restraints is i think a big part is is just to keep talking about it and mm-hmm. to use the word and i i really i'm a big advocate advocate of the power of conversations and talking to each other even though often especially given the scale of of what's happening in in the world at the moment it's easy to think we need to jump to huge solutions and you know big like technical fixes or uh, kind of 
huge revolutions. I think maybe we do need a huge revolution as well, but I think that starts with people having conversations with each other and realizing that we have similar concerns about that. Often we don't even talk about what we're what we're concerned about, what we're what we're what we fear is happening in the world. Um and that's I think that's a really good place to start. Absolutely. And I think something that I I would say is not taught enough uh, and I can speak very clearly about Canada and in part the United yeah. States, and it, it may be similar in the UK, that uh, the concept of what capitalism is, is not really taught. And yeah. I think it's, I, I've been scrolling through the comments uh, just quickly, and it's interesting to read so many people, exactly as you said, challenging yeah. the, this assertion that capitalism is the problem. And mm -hmm. when we consider that people, when they, when they, a core belief is challenged, they feel personally attacked. And I see some of that coming out, um, mm -hmm. which I think leads into interesting conversation though, because some of your other papers, um, you use the word imagine. Mm -hmm. And I am fascinated by that because <laughs> yeah, it's not something we're told we should do a lot. We're told to, especially when we're talking about climate change, the environment, when we're talking about uh, socio-ecological change, we're taught to look at facts, yeah. hard, cold facts. And if you don't have hard, cold facts, unless you're a government, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, when you're in government, you can pretty much just say what you want to say. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk about, as as a, a an academic, as a researcher, as someone who's spent a lot of time on the subject, what it means to imagine futures and solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Cause yeah, I think imagination is, is hugely important. Um, so, so yeah, well, how do we imagine futures? So basically, I think, well, my approach is that I, I start from a kind of understanding that even though we are, so as, as you said, like we're so often told that everything needs to be evidence-based and kind of every, the only things that count are facts. Um, and that we, we like humans will kind of respond. We're kind of given this impression that if the facts are there, then humans will respond rationally. And actually there's, there's tons of, of um, kind of psychology and sociology research that shows that th this is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like humans, like we're, we're not really very rational. Um, and it doesn't matter how many facts you throw at any given issue. Uh, if you're not already aligned with that issue, you're very unlike, you're very, you know, we're very good at filtering facts to fit with our existing worldview. Um, and this is where imagination comes in because it's really about how, how we imagine our places in the world. Um, how we, I mean, we use our imagination all the time in ways that we don't realize so we we use, you know, I'm using my imagination right now to imagine what it's like where you are sitting. <laughs> you know, I have no mm -hmm. idea what it's like there, but, uh, you know, that part of the world, I have to use what I've already gathered from my life experience and what I've read or what I've seen on TV to kind of vaguely imagine the part of the world that you're in. Um, and, of course, we all get, like, different messages from different places to build our pictures of the world. And it's not just about building our pictures of the world, but it's also about building our imagination of what we imagine our relationship to the world to be. Um, and that's something that's kind of um, was a real like eureka moment for me, especially because I think 
it's easy to assume that our relationship with the environment is a kind of just a given we don't really give it much thought but when we when, when we do give it some thought we realize that actually all our what we think is is very much shaped by things we've been told things in the news um the way that we've been educated um and this all feeds into kind of how we imagine things to be so and then once you kind of recognize that as a possibility then you can recognize that our imaginations can be changed if we were given or we had access to other kinds of information or other kinds of stories. So I think stories are really like important part of structuring our, our imaginations. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. This, so the stories that we tell each other about our place in the world and our relationship to non-human beings is really fundamental. And I think this is where capitalism comes in because capitalism um well as you as you mentioned it's it is quite hard to define like i and i'm not an expert in like capitalist ec economics mm. I, I find it you know it is difficult to kind of nail down exactly what it is but it's it's a set of practices it's a it's a whole load of ideas and rules about uh, you know how things should work but capitalism also um kind of depends on an imagination of the of the world that humans are very much separate from nature um and this is kind of, uh, especially in the kind of, well, the, the UK and the, in the kind of Western world, if you like, for want of a better word, um, word since kind of enlightened times, like the last couple of hundred years, um, this idea of humans being separate from nature has become very, very powerful. Um, and we, we, we kind of passively absorb this language all the time in the media, especially in just just um you know humans versus nature and i heard a news report the other day saying humans are overtaking nature um in the as a kind of geological force um hmm. but actually this is only one way of talking about about us and uh non-humans or or just environment in general so other um other cultures other societies as i'm sure you are very aware especially in canada with um kind of indigenous um knowledges and heritage um you know there are very different ways of of seeing ourselves in relation to the world so um other cultures wouldn't even have a concept of of nature as a separate kind of thing like humans are fundamentally part of nature um so yeah so i think that's really like how imagination feels really important to me is it's a way of like structuring our thoughts um um i've got a really nice quote somewhere actually so yeah, so uh, there's a quote I've come across before which really like nails it for me. I think I'm not sure who said it, but it's um, we do not describe the world we see; we see the world that we describe. Um, and I think that that really kind of brings home for me the importance of of just language in shaping our our imaginations of the world. And I think that certainly plays into talking about these issues as well. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about changing these issues. I mean, that's, you know, we, we're hearing so much about climate change these days, uh, particularly those yeah. of us with an interest in the environment or wildlife or any nature-related subject matter. And we, we hear about the, you know, the need for carbon taxes and cap and trade programs and global order and ver various big ideas. Yeah. And I, I'm curious too, as to whether or not you think this might be a problem 
in a lot of those conversations, we're dealing with very large ideas mm-hmm. uh, that are difficult to fathom, I would say, mm-hmm. for most imaginations. I mean, it's what, uh, for example, when we talk about wildlife, when we talk about animals, it is much more effective to tell the story of the one dog in the shelter or the one mink on the farm than it is to say there are you know, 350,000 dogs waiting for a home or there are 2 million mink on a farm because yeah. we, we, just, we can't quite comprehend yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So particularly when we then look at sort of the commentary that we're getting back from, you know, your essay on capitalism and the WWF report, uh, when we look at the way these conversations tend to go, uh, in my opinion, quite frequently with whataboutism, uh, do you think that imagination can be the key, that storytelling concept you're talking about, to really challenging people in a way that's accessible? Yeah, I I, I do think so. Um, I think I think more and more things seem possible when you can imagine when you can imagine it essentially. So, and it it is partly about being able to imagine a different future, being able to imagine that the world could be different, that we might live. Um, outside of the the kind of capitalist or with an alternative to a kind of capitalist system. Um, and it's, yeah, being able to imagine that things might be, might be otherwise. Um, in terms of the kind of the large scale thing, yeah, I think that is a challenge. That is a challenge for imagination, for sure. Like, as you said, like just being able to imagine the sheer scale of the, of the problem. Um, and actually, a lot of people now, uh, uh, well, many people have been talking for a long time about there's there's a lot of value in being um, in being able to kind of scale down our attention, which may seem very kind of counterintuitive at a time when you know we're having warnings about climate change and and you know sixth mass extinction um, kind of being bombarded at us. It, it feels like we need a global response. Um, but actually, I think often the, the the very small scale responses are often what we can we can handle ourselves as individuals and as communities. Um, they're much more manageable in that way, and they're, they're easier for us to imagine. And actually, if we were all doing that in in some respect, then that becomes a global, you know, a more, a more of a global kind of movement. Um, yeah, it, um, that Susan Sontag has written about how. Um, compassion can only flounder and wither in abstraction. So when, you know, when we have these huge kind of abstract concepts, concepts like, like the Anthropocene or, you know, global climate change, um, and we're constantly being told that this is an emergency and a crisis, um, it's really difficult for us to know as human beings in our homes, in our communities to, to kind of to handle that information and to, and to actually respond to it. Um, and I think often what happens then, um, when there is this kind of big emergency uh, discourse, that's a really perfect excuse for governments to to implement solutions which are at a kind of to kind of continue the kind of um, kind of industrial complex that actually is creating the problem. So they they find solutions at that level which actually don't. Um, don't really contribute to much. Whereas if we start thinking things on much like more personal level, more kind of, uh, yeah, home-based like community level, then it becomes easier to handle and there's more things that we can, 
do in our immediate lives, whether it's related to how we eat or, you know, um, conversations we have with people, it becomes on an, oh yeah, on an imagination level, it becomes more kind of, yeah, more graspable. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a, an interesting example of that is the plastic straws, uh, in that it is a very real thing that a lot of people got behind very quickly and easily, uh, and will make a difference. I think it'll make a large difference if we get rid of plastic straws or commonly used plastic straws. Mm. But what a lot of groups then were immediately saying is plastic straws are not even the tip of the iceberg. They're a yeah. snowflake on the yeah. iceberg. Yeah. And that's where I, I will often struggle is in this position of being realistic and saying, if we got rid of every plastic straw on the planet tomorrow, it'd be awesome, but yeah. it's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to fix yeah. anything. Yeah. And recognizing that eat like the 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 global movement to get rid of plastic straws is such an extraordinary thing that mm-hmm. like it, it, how frequently in history does half the planet get on board with an idea other mm-hmm. than we should bring david bowie back to life <laughs> yeah like it, it's it's very rare so you know in your from your perspective how do we balance those conversations? How do we say like, yeah, this this isn't going to fix everything, but yeah. even if it's symbolic, it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really it's it's a really difficult issue because, um, on one hand, those actions, yeah, they they do something. They count for something. They reduce some plastic. I think they also do a lot in like just. Um, raising awareness and kind of raising a sense of solidarity almost like if you learn that other people actually care about plastic then that emboldens ourselves to you know we kind of embolden each other when we when we recognize that somebody else cares about it i think so often because we don't we don't talk about so much like what we are concerned about then we don't recognize that other people share our concerns so those kind of movements do definitely have have a place I would say but then <clears throat> the danger is that that there's a kind of um a displacement of blame or responsibility onto our individual consumption habits um and that's quite dangerous because I think where where the most effective action is is actually towards corporations so I'm kind of <laughs> it's a very tricky one because I'm saying on one hand it's difficult to imagine the the kind of big the very big picture um, and maybe it's 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 we can be more personally political in our own individual lives, but at the same time we do need to collectively come together, not necessarily on a on a global scale, but but within a kind of manageable level of society to to tackle to to really challenge the way that governments and corporations set the rules of global capitalism and and and, and essentially drive. Um, much larger scale plastic consumption that we can we can possibly kind of tackle through you know stopping using plastic straws so mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's a it's a tricky conundrum <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the technical term for it tricky yeah. <laughs> uh i had a brilliant question lined up and now it's gone that happens oh. you said tricky conundrum and it wiped all logic from my oh, mind I'm for sorry. a moment it's all right uh, that's why we have editing um, it's nice. It's not live. <laughs> oh yeah, I I could not do live. I would I would swear incessantly <laughs> because I'd be thinking, don't swear, don't swear, don't swear. 
uh, I don't like doing live. Um, <laughs> politics, as we have learned, remain exceptionally divisive um, in the United States. Uh, even though there's a lot of things to be happy about with the midterm elections, uh, there's still very clearly a lot of problems. Um, I'm not as familiar with the UK political scene. I just know a couple of things that a few British friends share. Uh, but I know it's also, there's some big issues that divide people quite clearly, uh, in addition to the same things we struggle with globally. Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> How do we get people to say that, <laughs> yes, we all agree the planet's in trouble and we all need to make small sacrifices and changes when we have trouble getting people to say, um, we shouldn't, you know, hate people because they look different than me or mm-hmm. that, you know, you shouldn't worry about putting food on your dining room table or, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of these, these other big, when, when we talk socioeconomics uh, or socioecological, I suppose, too, to a degree, you know, it's, well, I need to chop down the street because I need to heat my home and I need to sell lumber. Like those are the priorities of the individual. So how do we, uh, uh, and I, I don't want to say manipulate, but really it's the best term. How do we manipulate? How do we convince people mm-hmm. that there's big long-term issues at stake? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think again, a lot of it kind of comes down to imagination and being able to imagine that the world might be otherwise, that it could actually maybe even be a little bit better. And that would be, um, that's a kind of quite motivating kind of political idea, I guess, that would that would that would ha- possibly help people kind of get on board with these kinds of issues. Because I think a lot of the a lot of the really nasty stuff about capitalism is that it's normalized. Um, so we tend to think that it's just n- normal. We've got used to the the environmental destruction and the pollution in our cities and the um, the terrible inequality that we see, not just globally, but, you know, within countries as well, we kind of have normalized it. We kind of got, got used to it somehow. Um, so in general, when people think about the idea of, of moving to something other than capitalism, there's this idea that we're going to have to sacrifice something that our lives are so amazing that we'll have to sacrifice stuff. Um, and actually I think there's a lot that we could, um, sacrifice in inverted commas that that we would probably be better off without i mean most developed nations have got like huge huge trouble with you know mental health issues physical health issues um yeah as i said inequality and all of these things um i i think are kind of side not entirely down to capitalism but they're a large side effect of of the kind of economic system that we have and if we could sort of if people could be more aware that those things are connected they're all connected that um and that maybe by addressing our kind of economic system then we could actually all live healthier lives more kind of possibly happier lives then then that would be a very motivating factor and that's something that i would presume would kind of cross political divides as well like who who doesn't want to be healthier and happier for example but um um yeah but but yeah climate change is a very difficult one because it is already so deeply deeply politicized and i think possibly your side of the atlantic more than our mm. side very much divided along kind of political lines um so yeah um 
I'm afraid I may not have a silver bullet for that one, but I think <laughs> yeah, again, it starts, it starts with, um, it starts with conversations and, um, yeah, f- trying to find, I think there's, there's been a lot of, you know, I've heard a lot of, um, kind of talk over here about the importance of actually just trying to talk to people who we don't necessarily, um, share the same political ideas with because there's such a huge divide and we don't see it on our social media because the algorithms divide us <laughs> so that we yeah. literally, we cannot see what the other, the other side are, are talking about. And so we just get further and further apart. So, um, you know, I, again, starting the very kind of personal level, like saying hi to our neighbors and this kind of thing. I mean, I think it's, it is ultimately like all, all connected. I, I want to ask personally how you, so I, again, looking at the comments on this article, I, I, I manage social media as part of my job. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand the frustration and I was, I was a journalist and I'm a writer still. So people are constantly challenging what I say and what I write. The number of people who very clearly didn't read your mm. article, you know, maybe they skimmed it. They read the headline. And as we said before, immediately hit on, well, if it's not capitalism, look at what the Soviets did. They're so great environmentally, um, you know, referencing a a nation that's been gone for 30 years. Um, There's a lot of what I'd call uh, almost sort of like an ivory tower waggling of, well, you know, I can also say big words and (laughs) they don't, but they're not actually making a point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're arguing a semantic on whose philosophy of capitalism you're referencing um, or whether or not this is a Marxist view and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's not the point. Yeah. Um, so on, on a personal level, um, you know, as, as someone who is, you know, you're, you're still in academia, uh, mm-hmm. you're doing your postdoctoral uh, research mm-hmm. now. How, how do you manage? I mean, I see you trying to reply to a lot of these. Um, but how do you manage the people who just, and I think this is sort of a, a microcosm, uh, people who just, they, they don't want to agree. So they come up with reasons not to. Yeah. 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 That, no, that's a really good question because I, yeah. And I think you, you are very yeah perceptive in how those comments run. Cause I, that, I did have that. I found it difficult to, to that. Well, firstly, they surprised me. I, I kind of, yeah, to be honest, I guess maybe I was slightly in my my kind of little research bubble, and I I assumed that it was kind of a given that capitalism is a problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but actually, no, apparently it's not a given. Um, um, yeah, so they kind of took those comments did take me aback a bit, and I tried to be diplomat- diplomatic in some of my replies to them, and then uh, sometimes they would just re- reply straight back again, and with a similarly kind of un- unflexible response um and yeah that that is a no it's a really tricky thing and i i don't know how would those conversations have gone maybe in person maybe it would have been i don't know it could have been better it could have been worse i mean online is 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 kind of becoming you know obviously a kind of prime prime ground for those kind of shouty conversations (laughs) um um yeah but how to how to overcome those divides is really tricky. And I, and again, I think a lot of us, we, we don't have the the skills actually, because we haven't been taught these kinds of 
approaches to to democracy and to, to conversation and to kind of diplomacy. Like there are there are ways that we can talk to each other that we that would kind of overcome. And there are there are kind of trainings you can do, kind of nonviolent communication. There's um, there's a there are other methods of like speaking in circle where everybody um, has a turn. You kind of have a everybody has a turn speaking in the circle and and, there, and there's a lot of respect in the room. So everybody's view has to be respected. So there are ways that humans can have conversations like with each other. Um, and I have experienced some of those and they really are kind of quite like profound experiences actually. But I think in our day-to-day lives, we, we never really seen examples of, of kind of not just black and white conversations, but like, gray in the middle conversations where mm-hmm. you know where a mix of opinions um are given and maybe there's not like a definite conclusion or you know but the way that a lot of our media and society operates is, operates is that there needs to be certainty and there needs to be kind of maybe one clear side or at least or maybe maximum two clear sides to the argument and that's how the media kind of often is presenting things i mean granted it's difficult with kind of TV media and, and the like because of the, you know, time constraints, et cetera. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, there's, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, having, having conversations and, and, and also understanding that, that we all, we all are coming from different, we all have, our, we're carrying our own stories about what, how we understand the world to be. And I think that's a really maybe nice place to start from in trying to, understand another person's perspective is it's it's not that they're not that they're crazy or um or they're just kind of racist or they you know whatever when they may be they may be there's no excuse for being racist but but what i'm trying to say is that from from if something comes across as being a totally crazy view from our perspective um if we try and understand it from their perspective that they've grown up with an entirely different story about how the world works um, then their views start to make a bit of sense and we might be able to have at least some empathy with them. And from that place of empathy, then maybe we start having more productive conversations. Absolutely. And that's something I'll talk about um, with the fur bears. Our mandate uh, includes ending trapping. Um, mm-hmm. And we will often hear from people and it's difficult to explain that if you went your whole life being taught not just that this is acceptable, but it's a positive thing to do, that it's a responsible thing to do, and that everybody around you did it, and that your grandparents did it, and your parents, and your siblings, and so on. Um, so all of a sudden, have people saying you're a bad person because of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one way to look at it, in if we're trying to be empathetic, is if someone came up and said, hockey makes you a bad person. I can't believe you watch that. <laughs> like it just it, it would just sound absolutely ridiculous yeah. like why would you say that of course it's a good thing um and i i think our expectations of other people can also be skewed uh and then we of course have to deal with the the anger and the frustration and all these other things that come out of advocacy mm-hmm. uh, i want to end off going back to the concept of imagination uh because i i i really like that idea how do you propose at this time, if you have proposals in such a way, or even if you don't, uh, maybe you have questions to ask, that we use imagination to find our way out of some of this mess that we're in? 
mm-hmm. in regards to wildlife populations, ecosystems, um, even just the way globalism is going right now yeah. uh, in very big, broad terms. Do you see imagination as the tool? Do you know a way we can start using it more? Or have you come up with solutions that we, we should be looking at through imagination? Yeah, um, well, I'm not sure I've come up with any solutions, but I've definitely read a lot that has really inspired me and kind of convinced me that it's definitely a very important kind of solution alongside a lot of other things. Probably, you know, there are um, there are other things aside from imagination that need to happen. But um, I think for me, um, <clears throat> I think I think if we can imagine a different relationship between humans and environment that isn't one of that's based on this idea of a separate category, like humans and nature being a separate category um, and starting to be able to imagine that actually humans are nature. We're all interconnected, um, kind of reliant on one another, whether we're humans or beavers or microbes or whatever, we're all intertwined. Um, If we can start to imagine that that's a huge step because um because this category of humans and nature i think i said earlier um capitalism kind of needs us to imagine the world like that because if we don't have a category called nature which is like which is essentially uh cheap and exploitable and not very important um and it's not just non-humans that have gone into that category in the past it's been it's also been women and it's been indigenous people and this is what's what's kind of enabled the kind of industrial capitalist complex and kind of colonial forces to 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 kind of wreak so much destruction is because it's it's kind of this language of of society on one side and nature on the other allows this kind of black box of nature just to have all our all, all our kind of terrible stuff um all our pollution stuff chucked into it and and all all kind of bad behaviors are enabled through that approach. So if we can kind of get rid of that divide between between us, between humans being separate from this thing called nature and actually imagining ourselves as as thoroughly intertwined with with all life on earth, then that's that's um a really big step. And I also really think it's important to stop imagining ourselves as as inherently bad. And this is what I wrote about in the article as well. That, there's a really kind of widespread, and I've, I've seen this in my research as well, that there's a kind of widespread idea that humans are inherently just kind of, we're a virus on the planet, essentially. Like, we're just going to, we're just going to mess things up until there's no planet left. and We just can't help it because that's in our genes. Um, and and I think, well, A, that's kind of really a really skewed view of humanity because there's plenty of examples of where humans are actually living quite uh, successfully in in their environments and and sustainably and that has happened in the past um and i just think that's a really that kind of approach really breeds apathy as well because i mean we can't help being human <laughs> so um th- this kind of approach kind of makes people just throw up their hands in despair and like well we just gotta <laughs> there's no hope we're just gonna you know things are just gonna go downhill and downhill so um um and i really like something i read the other day with some um and actually I read, I was just reading on your website, um, it was actually about about beavers. Um, so there was a quote that said, sadly, beavers are perceived as a nuisance, which is a troubling misconception. And I kind of thought, well, that's kind of really nice because maybe we're just misperceiving ourselves as humans. Like, um, 
we kind of perceive ourselves as a nuisance and in we we very much what well, some some of us in the, in the world very much are being kind of or our, our societies that currently is organized is being a nuisance um but maybe it doesn't have to be like that and um just as beavers are a keystone species um in their in their um ecologies humans are also kind of we could think of ourselves as keystone species and we can decide how to carry how to how to be one whether we were a kind of good one or a bad one but um um there there are there's plenty of examples of how humans actually shape their environments for for the better actually and they create more more ecological niches and more environments for other species and we we are capable of doing that but we often don't and i think that's a really important like imaginative distinction to make you can find dr pygot's essay at theconversation.com Links to the essay and Dr. Pygott's academic website are available in this week's show notes or the blog at thefurbearers.com. That's it for this week, folks. I want to thank Dr. Pygott for joining me and all of you for listening. Remember to follow me on social media to stay up to date on news, contests, adorable photos of JJ the Hamilton Hound, and more. I'm at Defender Radio on Facebook and Twitter, and at Howie Michael on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Mm-hmm.